Well, I'm going to have to change my plans a little bit here because that's just too good a song not to talk about it a little bit more. Um, today, as we, um, as we begin, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to just review the lyrics of the song we just, we just read or just sang. And, and I want to do that because as Martin Luther considered music second only to Scripture in, the importance, in importance to the Christian life, this is an example of that. These hymns, these doctrinal hymns that we sing uh, are in many senses like the creeds of old that would uh, summarize the doctrines of Scripture and get them into our hearts and minds where we might memorize them and live them out. And so as we consider this uh, this newer hymn and whenever we come across these newer or less familiar hymns uh, it's easy for us in trying to to work to sing them to miss kind of the weight of it having sung it it's already in your mind and this captures the essence of advent and the message we'll be looking at today this hymn by matt boswell it says, come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured. Love untold. That, by the way, that is exactly what we're celebrating when we take the, uh, the remembrance celebration or the communion, the Lord's Supper, as we do the first Sunday of every month. Jesus didn't give us a specific uh, schedule to do it, but he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of my body broken for you, in remembrance of my blood poured out for you, the new covenant, a righteousness from God that is by faith from first to last. Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners 
He is the price of our redemption. Before we read the text, let's just let's just approach the Lord in prayer. Father, um, as we consider what child this is, laid to rest on his mother's lap, who was so worthy of angel song and shepherd watch. King of Kings. Father, he came that the nails and spear should pierce him through. That his cross might be born for us. I pray, Father, that as we consider these texts today and as we look at the very concept of the Christ who would come to save us from our sins, that you would open our eyes and our minds that we might think and feel and receive. Protect us. (laughs) Protect us, Lord, from the idolatry of our own righteousness. Humble us, break us, do whatever is necessary, Lord, that we might recognize that our only hope is in Christ alone. Now, Lord, be glorified in this moment as we open your word. Make it live to us that we might live according to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our text today is Matthew 1. It's verses 18 to 21, but for the sake of uh, context and because I uh, did not have time to read through all of this last week, I just want to back you up to Matthew uh, 1, 1 so we can see what's going on here. Matthew is recording this gospel. He is writing down the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, so that we could know him as the seed of David, the promised king. Here's what he writes. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he goes into this this uh, sort of truncated and structured genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So far so good. We know these guys. Now we get to some that maybe we don't know as well. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod. Abiod, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, before we get into our text for today, we want to see just a couple of things. First, as we saw last week, the Christ was promised from of old, but the Christ who came was eternal. He was God himself put on flesh, and he came through Abraham's line as God had promised. And he came through David's line as God had promised. But as you look at this genealogy, and we won't take the time to go through it, you see idolaters, adulterers, murderers, and harlots. This is the line of our Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you don't, catch anything else from this recognize that your background just doesn't matter it doesn't matter who you came from it doesn't matter the sins of the past what matters is what God does with it and out of all of those sins of the generations and those unfaithful kings God used all of that every little detail to lead to the moment when the Christ would come. Now, in this next portion, we'll see an encounter between Joseph and an angel, and we'll see why Christ came. Let's continue reading with verse 18. <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph woke up and did what the angel, what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave her the name, he gave him the name Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we look at this text, what we see here is Jesus, Jesus being born into a scandalous situation. This isn't news for you. You've all heard this before in various forms. Luke's account gives us a little more detail into what's going on on Mary's side. He gives us Mary's genealogy. He has the encounter with uh, Mary's family and an angel and also with Mary and an angel. Happens to be the same angel. And as this angel comes and brings the message of what God is doing, not only is the event that's about to unfold revealed, but the reason for it the purpose for the coming of the Christ. And we see that captured here in verse 21, which is our memory verse for today. What the angel says to Joseph is precisely the point. <clears throat> Excuse me. She'll give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. He came to save. This was his purpose. This is why he did what he did. And so as we look at this today, this is what we want to explore. This idea of the Christ. If we're going to understand who the Christ that came is then we need to understand not only was he foretold, was he promised but he came with a purpose, and Jesus was always on mission. Everything that he did led to this, his teaching, his example, every aspect of it. He came to save his people from their sins. Now that's probably a bigger concept than, than what most of us understand, and definitely a bigger concept than what we'll be able to capture today. This idea of saving his people from their sins involves specifically God's promises to Israel. And we'll see that later in the next couple of weeks as we see what is going to unfold in the future in the second advent. Because Messiah has a very specific purpose in setting all things right, in conquering sin and removing sin. But in the meantime, he came now to begin this age of grace that is the only reason we have hope before the second advent. I'll give you a little preview of things to come. When Jesus comes in his fullness, when he comes to reign on the earth, and we see the promises fulfilled that Isaiah predicts of the lion laying down with the lamb and, uh, and, and the government being on his shoulders, we don't want to miss out on what God points out very clearly throughout the Old Testament. This will not be a day of joy. This will be a day of judgment. The joy comes after the judgment when all that is less than God's perfection is removed. So that which remains is only perfect and suits 
the presence of God. If Christ came to judge before he went to the cross, none of us could stand. But he came now so that all of us walking dead, if you will, all of us condemned people would have the opportunity to receive grace and mercy from him so that when he comes back to do, to complete everything that, that is foretold, rather than being judged and condemned, we can stand under the judgment he's already taken on our behalf. And we can reign with him as his people. Hopefully we'll see this by the end of today. <clears throat> the Christ who came would save. This is our core reality today. The Christ who came would save his people from their sins. We're considering that the purpose of Christ's coming was God's redemption of his people. The Christ came to save sinners. The promise of the Christ was innately tied to his purpose. The Christ was to be the fulfillment of all that God had promised his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was God's perfect plan from the beginning. Before sin ever entered the world. Before it ever ruined Adam's helpless race. This was foretold since the garden when the Lord promised the coming seed of woman would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15, he never wavered from his appointed purpose. The Christ who came would save his people from their sins. Let's take a look at that passage in Matthew 1.18 and following. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then we'll take a look at some more passages I want to do a little more uh, reading at the beginning so that we can do a little more walking as we go through it. Notice what's going on here. We get this, uh, this really brief thing in, in uh, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a pretty clean way to say it. That's kind of nice. So they are betrothed, which is kind of like engaged, but like magnified. It's, it's not fully married. All of the, the rights of marriage are not there. And yet in this betrothal period, there is a, uh, a covenant relationship already in this agreement to become married. The, uh, the union of marriage does not take place until after the marriage itself. But now, in this period, they would get to know one another. They would establish the, uh, the habits and character that would be involved in the intimacy personally, relationally, learning to trust one another. If you're learning to trust the person you are pledged to be married to, and you find out that she's pregnant and you know you weren't there, this creates a problem. It's more than a scandal, and, and I don't think we can rightly appreciate scandal of this magnitude today. Not, not in our world. 
some of us who are of a, a, an older generation, we might have a little bit of a glimpse of it because we can remember when scandal existed. When it was a scandalous thing to have a child, as it were, out of wedlock. Now that's just become pretty normal in our society, so it doesn't really hit us the same. But none of us can quite picture what it would have been like to be among God's chosen people, Israel. And the Old Testament law called for death as the penalty for adultery. It was a picture of the purity of God and unfaithfulness, adultery toward God was the highest crime you could have. Therefore, in marriage, the reflection of that relationship, adultery, unfaithfulness to your mate, was very similar. It carried that reflection. So Joseph now has a problem. He has a dilemma. The one that he loves, the one that he has committed himself to, and being a devout and righteous man, he is recognizing the spiritual implications of this for all that he can see and know and understand has utterly and ultimately betrayed him and God. He doesn't, he doesn't want to expose her to public scandal. He doesn't want to have her executed, which the Jews had lost that, that uh, uh, legal right under the Roman. Only the Romans could do that under their empire. So it's a little different than the Old Testament. But, but this, this weight, he didn't want to put this on her. Notice there's a kind of a picture here already, pre-Christ, to a Christ-like forgiveness, the mercy of God in the righteousness of Joseph. He has no desire to exact justice against the one he loves. And yet righteousness demands it. So what does he do? He has in mind to divorce her quietly. Notice he doesn't just jump to a rash decision. That's so unlike most of us, isn't it? Maybe we should take a little more time to think through our decisions and weigh them in light of what God expects and what justice and mercy both demand. So Joseph does that. He takes his time he wrestles with it, has in mind to divorce her quietly. And then an angel of the Lord comes and visits this merciful and just man. And he says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Notice Matthew keeps going back to the son of David idea. He wants to make sure that we understand Joseph is of the legal line of David. He may not be the, the physical, biological father but he has the legal standing within the royal line of David to keep the covenant, to keep the promise to David. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She didn't cheat on you. This is God's doing. Do not call evil what God has done. 21, she will give birth to a son. Now, they didn't have ultrasounds, right? They didn't, they didn't have the, the expectation that we do now that you're going to have a gender reveal party and you're going to know all this stuff. They didn't know that stuff. 
you didn't know what was going on inside there until it was time. The angel says, she's going to give birth to a son. A son conceived by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. A son who will be the one. You're going to name him Jesus. Jesus was the Greek form of the Jewish name Yeshua, Joshua, which means Savior, God saves. You may remember when we were in Numbers recently that Hosea, son of Nun, was given the name Joshua by Moses. Joshua would be the one who would save the people. And we see sort of a typological or typological, if you prefer, uh, contrast between Moses representing the law and Joshua representing the righteousness by faith. They were both the same. But we see that contrast, Joshua being the type of Christ. And throughout the book of Joshua, we see victory after victory after victory as Joshua leads the people in trusting and following the Lord by faith. Now we see late in time that he has come. And the angel says, you're going to name him Jesus. Uh, but I was going to name him, you know, after my dad, you know, going to pass on. No, you're going to name him Jesus because he has a purpose. He's coming to save his people from their sins. This is the power of the advent. Verse 23. Notice again the emphasis here on the fulfillment we saw last week that the Christ was foretold and we're told here by Matthew, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That prophecy was, uh, is in reference here to Isaiah and Isaiah uh, had an immediate fulfillment of his own son, born of a young woman, not a virgin, but a maiden. The word is, is the same in the translation, and so we see a, a crossover here. And that immediate fulfillment, 700 years prior, up until now, they would not have understood that this was a messianic prophecy the same way that we can afterward, as the angel reveals what's happening. And Matthew records for us that this is in fulfillment of what had happened previously. Theologians would call that the law of double fulfillment, that you have a, a, a short-term, a near-term uh, fulfillment of the prophecy that is a type of the ultimate, later, fuller uh, fulfillment of prophecy. But that's what's happening here. It's a fulfillment. So we see that he is both called Emmanuel, God with us, and actually named Jesus, God saves. Then Joseph woke up and did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And Matthew is careful to point out that he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. That um, does a couple of things. It points out that Joseph was very careful in keeping the Lord's commands. 
Joseph had nothing to do with the unborn Christ. It also undoes the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. It was until Christ was born, until Jesus was born. And then they did the the natural and commanded thing within marriage that pleased God. All right, so pressing on here. We see that that, uh, Christ was born with this purpose of saving. In Luke 19.10, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 19.10, Jesus said that, that he didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the purpose for his coming, to seek and to save the lost. Jeff read for us earlier from Isaiah 53, this prophecy of the suffering servant. Turn there with me, if you will. If you go back to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms, then Slide back to the right a little bit. Just just to the right of there, you'll find Isaiah. It's a pretty big book, so it's not that hard to find. Isaiah 53. One of the things that stands out about Isaiah 53 is this picture of the suffering servant is sort of a contrast with the vast majority of obvious messianic prophecies that we see. Most of the time, in Isaiah in particular, we see the victorious Messiah, the Christ. He comes to set all things right. He comes to rule. He comes to judge. He's a mighty warrior. He's a wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. But in Isaiah 53, there's this contrast. It's not the only passage, but it is the clearest and most concise Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, Christ the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot. This happens often in prophecy, the literary device of speaking about it as if it were past tense when it is yet to be fulfilled. This speaks to the certainty of the fulfillment of God's prophecies, of his promises. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Messiah would grow up as a regular man. He would grow up as a, as a baby, as a boy, as a teenager, as a man, and nothing about him would stand out as, wow, I'll bet that guy is the one. He was just another guy. Anybody who looked at him would just see another Jewish man. So the idea that Jesus is somehow the most compelling figure doesn't match what we see. The the thing that caught people's attention, the thing that grabbed them was the authority that he wielded. When he spoke, he wasn't the great orator. he, He may have been a a wonderful speaker, but we're not given anything to indicate that he was. He may have been quite handsome, but we're not given anything to see that they they looked at him and said, this is the guy. In 1 Samuel, we see the first king of Israel, and the people looked at him, a man named Saul, and said, all right, that's a king, we're ready. He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. He was better looking 
than most everybody. And you just looked at him and thought, that's the alpha. That's the, that's the one we want to follow, right? Jesus wasn't that. Now, he probably wasn't the Apostle Paul. We're told the Apostle Paul was, uh, was uh, a less attractive, uh, uh, physically ailing, uh, kind of a struggling guy. We're not told that in Scripture, but, but tradition holds that. I can't vouch for the veracity of it. All I know is that when Paul came, he did not rely on his great intellect. He did not rely on anything external. But to preach, declare, proclaim Christ crucified. When Jesus came, he didn't rely on natural ability or strength. It wasn't about the strength of the orator. It was about the message. And ultimately, Christ didn't come to deliver a message. He made an announcement. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he gave us the opportunity to repent by being the one who would save us from our sins. Pressing on in Isaiah 53. Look what he says next in in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't, we didn't see him and say, oh, wow, you know, I, I really think this is the right message. We're, gonna, you know, we're just going to respond and jump on it. And we're told in the book of John that the light came. We didn't want the light. He came to that which was his own, the people of Israel who should know better than anybody else the signs of Messiah and the fulfillment of prophecy. But they didn't receive him. He was despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was stricken and afflicted but understand it was because of our sin our transgression transgression means breaking of the law specifically there's a law and we have broken it and because we have been rule breakers law breakers christ was pierced he was crushed for our iniquities our lawlessness the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Here's our state. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, somebody, somebody recognizes right now that that's you. It should be everybody. We should be seeing ourselves in a mirror with this right now. I'm going to read that again because this is a good place. If we're paying attention to our own lives, this is a good place for an amen right here. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You may remember when Christ faced Pilate 
He didn't argue the charges. He didn't make a defense. In fact, his accusers got frustrated when he didn't answer. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, excuse me, in verse 8, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. If you have a, um, if you have an ESV or a New American Standard, it might say it was the Lord's delight or it pleased him. It's probably a little better rendering than it was the Lord's will. The Lord delighted in this. It was his pleasure to crush his son and cause him to suffer. Not because God wanted to make Jesus miserable, but because he wanted to make us free from sin. It's the victory that delighted him. The salvation of our souls that delighted him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. It just said, who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. And yet, this is one of those places that we see ourselves in the passage. He will see his offspring, that's us, and prolong his days. He will live even though he dies. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. So he's died, but he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Turn to the book of John. I'm going to go from Isaiah's prophecies to the New Testament. We'll do most of our page turning here, and then we'll roll a little. John chapter 1. John 1 will begin with verse 10. Speaking of Christ, the word... He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, everybody say yet. This is a very important yet, right? His own did not receive him, yet to all who received him. It's the contrast to those who should have and did not, to all who did, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the advent. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him, John the Baptist he's referring to. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And just to make sure we get it, that, that this is Christ's eternal nature, Luke points out that John was conceived and born first. So just in case you don't think Jesus was a little bit older or that he began his ministry first, John was conceived first, foretold, born first, was older, began his public ministry first. He was the forerunner of Christ. And yet he says here, he has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, We have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Turn the the page to chapter 3. Jesus here is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin one of the great teachers of Israel, and they're meeting under cover of darkness. We don't really know for sure why, but it seems as if Nicodemus perhaps wants to ask questions without being questioned about it. So they're meeting, and Jesus tells them, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, and Nicodemus kind of struggles with this. But take a look at uh, Jesus' explanation to him starting with verse 14. Before we read this, let me just point out we're going to come to this story in the book of Numbers in the new year where the sins of the people lead the Lord to judge them by sending a a plague of snakes, poisonous vipers. And they're getting bitten and dying. Not a fun process. And the Lord has them make a representation of the snake out of bronze and lift it up on a pole. And those who will trust the word of the Lord and look to that bronze serpent that's lifted up, this representation of their sin and judgment, would live. Look and live. There's no medical process that's going to make that work, right? It's faith and God doing the saving. Now, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is a reference to crucifixion, by the way, for him. It's clarified elsewhere. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The Christ 
who came would save his people from their sins. Jump ahead to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We see this reflected in the book of Ephesians, where all who are outside of Christ, who have not received him, not believed in his name, are by nature objects of wrath. And Paul's very careful to point out that that's all of us. None of us start out a clean slate, as some psychologists and sociologists would like to say. We all are born with sin in our nature. In other words, that baby is not a cute little angel. It's a viper in a diaper. We are children of the serpent. And only faith in Christ changes our identity from children of the serpent to children of God. It's crucial for us to recognize that it's only in Christ's coming that we can have this salvation. That's the purpose. This is why it's necessary for him to come in this first advent to offer salvation rather than coming to judge now because if he came to judge, all of us already stand condemned. But because we're offered this mercy, we have the privilege and the opportunity to be able to say, yes, Lord, I'm yours, save me. Turn a little more to the right to the book of Romans. go past the book of Acts, jump to Romans. Romans chapter 3. We're going to need to understand these things to be able to fill in our blanks. That's why we're doing so much of this now. Romans 3, we'll begin with verse 19. Earlier in chapter 3, we see... uh, we see Paul referring to Old Testament passages uh, such as Psalm 110 and, and uh, you know, we, we see this, this picture of our wickedness. No one's righteous. Nobody actually seeks God. We, we may seek to create God in our image. We seek a God. We seek God, but only on our terms. We want God to do things our way. We want God to give us something we can understand to make our lives better, but we don't come to God on his terms. We're too sinful to even desire that. Here's what he says, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Right? You can, you can be as good as you want to be, but you're not going to be able to be made righteous in God's sight by keeping the law because what the law is saying is only to those who are already under the law. And what the law does is point out when we get sideways of it. That's the point of it. We don't find life in religion or law keeping. 
Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me read that again because I think we're so used to the first part of that verse that we we miss out on the second. This righteousness, this is verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's why he came. God presented him, notice this, as a sacrifice of atonement. Your translation may say a propitiation. It's a sacrifice that appeases the righteous wrath of a holy God against sin. A sacrifice of atonement is the payment of the penalty to make us one with God. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. A good God, a righteous judge, cannot let sin go unpunished. Right? No no good judge, if someone killed your child, is going to let them off. That's not what a good judge does. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, and he did this to demonstrate his justice. That's why it pleased him to crush him, to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God held off. He he, he, uh, had a stay of execution, if you will, for all of us, a suspended sentence in his forbearance. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in punishing sin and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Turn a few more pages to the book of Galatians. You go past the two Corinthian letters and then you see Galatians. Find chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll look at verses uh, 4 to, oh, we'll go 4 to 7, I think, or whenever I stop reading. But when the time had fully come, in other words, when everything was in place, when all that that had to happen has happened and, and we come to the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, Remember the promise in Genesis, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Born of a woman, born under the law, Jesus was subject to the law, being born of a woman, to redeem those under the law, that's all of us, that we might receive the full rights of sons. We get to be sons and daughters of God 
by faith in Christ because he gives us that right. We do nothing to deserve it. It's all him. Because you are sons, verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. A child of the living God. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Okay. The Christ who came would save his people from their sins. We've rolled through these passages. Now let's take a look at some concepts that we need to, to grasp. As I mentioned, today being the first Sunday of Advent, we are going to um, have this ancient sacred ceremony, which we call the Remembrance Celebration. You may call it the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist. This is a picture of what Jesus went through on our behalf. It is a ceremony for those who find their identity in him alone. And it reminds us, it, it refocuses, recalibrates our thinking, reorders our life to remind us of what is most important and central. That Christ died for sinners. When we celebrate the Advent, when we celebrate Christmas, the reason it matters is because the Christ who came would save his people from their sins. If it's just about a baby in a manger and a nostalgic story, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied, most hopeless because we, as those who claim Christ, are hanging our hat on that nail. He's our parachute. And if he didn't come to save sinners, then you and I still have to die for our own sins. In all that we're doing here in our best efforts, in our, in our, in our most selfless acts, it's like filthy rags. In all of the beautiful things that we do with our family and raising our children and trying to get them a good education, getting the best job we can get, trying to make a more just society, all of that is just <laughs> rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic because it's all going down. But, but, this is that yet part. If Jesus Christ came to this world to take on flesh, to become one of us, walk among us, facing every temptation, even as we do, yet without sin, and then dies in our place as a sacrifice of atonement so that when God passes judgment, instead of seeing our sin, he sees Christ, then nothing, nothing, can take us out of his hand. And we have hope and light in a dark and hopeless world. That's why Christmas matters. That's what Christmas really means, Charlie Brown. 
All right. We're going to see this in two parts, and, and you may notice already that there is an acronym there in the bold letters for the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good story, the good telling. The good news is that we condemned sinners, every single one of us, dirty, filthy objects of wrath, all of us. And until we get that part, until we embrace the law and the fact that we are sideways of God and we stand to be condemned and we deserve nothing better, Forget about all your rights. Forget about all your rights as an American. Forget about all your rights within your marriage. All of this junk, all this self-esteem that we've been preached at about, all of this stuff, cast it aside. Because what we actually deserve, according to all the things that we just read, and there's so much more, is hell. And if you are taking breath right now, that's God's grace. That's his mercy to us. We cannot understand Christmas. We cannot understand the Advent if we don't get that. The only good Christian is the one flat on their face in the dirt, recognizing I have nothing of my own to offer God. And I come with empty hands. We have a need for Christ. We also have hope in Christ. Notice this. We have a divine purpose. We have a divine purpose. Those of you who have been around will recognize this acronym, which we completely rip off from uh, the Dare to Share Ministries and Greg Steer without apology. God created us to be with him. Our divine purpose is that God created us to be with him. We were made for God's glory and pleasure. The Westminster Catechism says it this way. The chief end of man, the reason we exist, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper likes to point out in his books, uh, starting with Desiring God, that that what that really comes down to is we glorify God when we enjoy him. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, he rephrases the Westminster Catechism to say that our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, which I think is not in any way inappropriate, but captures the picture. In Genesis 1, for the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. You can check it out for your homework. Genesis 1, verses 26 to the end of the chapter, we see that God creates Humanity. He creates, creates man and woman, specifically male and female, by his design. Nobody is an accident. And he creates them in his image. Unique from the rest of creation, there is a relational aspect with God. We alone receive a command from God. When he creates the other, when he creates the plants and the animals, he doesn't give them a command, but man and woman are given a command, be fruitful, multiply the earth. Man and woman alone are given dominion, rule on God's behalf as under stewards, if you will, of God's kingdom. Nothing else is given that privilege or that responsibility. There's an indication of relationship here. In Revelation 4.11, we see that all things are made for his pleasure. He is worthy to receive praise. By his hand, everything was created. And for his pleasure and his glory, everything is created. And Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10.31. 
whatever we're doing, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is our purpose. God created us to be with him. And yet, not only do we have a divine purpose, but we have a fatal problem. We have a fatal problem. That problem is that our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God. In Genesis 3, we see the, uh, the introduction of sin into the system that destroys everything. Death and entropy enter the, the created order because sin enters the created order and separates us from the giver and source of life. So Adam and Eve are not immediately struck dead on the spot, but they are then spiritually dead and separated from God and experiencing a process that we all know all too well of a slow and agonizing death. It's the demise of every human being. Nobody gets off the planet alive until the Lord returns. We have a fatal problem. That's our sin. As we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A little later in Romans 6.23, Paul points out that the wages of that sin is death. That's what it earns. When you sin, you earn death. When you sin, it separates you from the source of life. Therefore, death is the natural, logical result. God created us to be with him, and our sin separates us from God. We have a purpose, but we have a problem. And that problem is that we have an unpayable debt. We have an unpayable debt. Religion works really hard to try to get to God. Take a look at all world religions, and you'll see the same thing. The details are different, but it's all trying to get right, to get to a relationship with God, however you may see or define God. And we see that in Christian cults, in Christian uh, 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 apostate movements, where we strive to be righteous enough to get God's attention, to earn God's favor. We say it in all sorts of different ways, but basically we're trying to balance the scales so many Christians in so-called evangelical churches still fall under that old deception. Adam and Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis have sinned. And so they try under their own power to cover it up. And it works great. Because hiding from God always works well. So they they hide and they make themselves coverings out of fig leaves. And if you've, I don't know about you, if you've ever tried to actually dress in fig leaves, it's, it's not decent. You know, it's not. I don't recommend it. And in that moment, as God pronounces the curse on the serpent, he also gives the promise of the serpent crusher, but he does something else that's crucial. Their covering of fig leaves is insufficient, but God, unfortunately, it costs animals their lives. God makes a covering for them out of skin. The animals are sacrificed as God does 
what Adam and Eve could not in covering them. It's a symbol that foreshadows what we learn later in the scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ came because we have a divine purpose but a fatal problem because we have an unpayable debt. God created us to be with him. Our sin separates us from God and sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. I can't balance the scales. In Philippians 3, Paul tells his own story. You can jot it down, Philippians 3, 1 to 9. I don't know if it's listed for you in, in your uh, references there. And he says, you know, you, you try to do this stuff by, you know, your, your benefits of the flesh, how, how strong and good you are. And he said, if anybody could boast of the flesh, I could. And he gives his, his background. And he says, but really, all of that is garbage to me. What, what was to my gain in the flesh, now that I see the truth, I consider it all loss. It wasn't the profit column. Now it's in the loss column now that I know what it really is. I thought I was building up credits. I was actually incurring debts. And it reminds me a little bit of Ezekiel 33, 13, another passage you can jot down, but you don't have to turn there right now, where God says, I've told the righteous man that you will live according to your righteousness, but if you trust in your righteousness, it will count for nothing. This is an Old Testament passage. This is a New Testament age of grace. This is God saying through Ezekiel to the people of Israel, if you follow me, if you love me, you will live and you will live a righteous life. But if you trust in your righteous life, if you think your good deeds can undo your sin, then it counts for nothing and I will judge you. You'll be under my wrath. Kind of a hammer. Isaiah 64, 6. The prophet tells us, speaking of Israel, that all of our deeds, all of our best efforts, all of our acts of righteousness, they're like filthy rags. They're like filthy rags. And it's a particularly crass metaphor that he's using. I won't describe it, but it's a particularly disgusting sort of rag that he's referring to. Our best righteousness is an abomination to God. When we, when we rely on it. Martin Luther said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. But as much as we have this problem and we have a need for Christ, we also have hope in Christ. Notice this, we have an undeserved payment. We have an undeserved payment. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. We read in Romans 3, 20, uh, in Romans 3, 23 to 26 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but in him, he was made a sacrifice of atonement. And so we have life offered to us through him. 
1 Corinthians 5.21 says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. You might jot down Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 18. We won't turn there for the sake of time. But it's a description of Jesus as our high priest. Every high priest in Israel would offer a sacrifice and have to keep offering these sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats cannot forever remove sin. But Jesus offered himself a sinless sacrifice to take our place. And each high priest would get replaced because they would die. When they would die, then the office would change. But Jesus lives forever to intercede for us. Therefore, we always have him to make our case. We have an undeserved payment because paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. We have an indescribable opportunity. We have an indescribable opportunity. That opportunity is this. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. You know John 3.16, we read it already. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 1.12, as we read, as many as received him, as believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In Acts 2, Peter says, Believe and you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We have an indescribable opportunity. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Notice also, when we take hold of this life, when we trust in him, this is faith. This is believing that what he said is true, that who he says he is, he actually is, and that his payment is enough. It's sufficient for all of our sin, past, present, and future. When we take hold of that, we have a glorious future. An undeserved payment, an indescribable opportunity, and when we capitalize on that indescribable opportunity we have a glorious future life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever in John 10 10 he says that he came to give us life abundant overflowing to the full that's the picture of life in Christ that's not a life that starts after we die this pie in the sky idea it's a life that begins now as the spirit of Christ dwells in us And he gives us the the power and opportunity to live in a way that we could not live before. To live a life pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 says, apart from faith, you can't please God. Because to please him, to seek him, you have to believe that he is. And that he rewards those that diligently seek him. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever last passage I'm going to have you look at and we'll wrap this up. John chapter 11. A familiar story. Perhaps you've not read it. In John chapter 11, Jesus 
arrives at the scene of uh, his grieving friends, as they're mourning the death of his dear friend Lazarus, Jesus delayed in coming, knowing what he was about to do, but in the process, Lazarus dies. And in John 11, starting with verse 21, as Jesus gets there, he encounters the sister of the dead man. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. As a good Jewish woman, she believes the truth that, that all Christians believe as well in a general resurrection in the final judgment day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he leaves her with this question, do you believe this? This is the hope and purpose of the Advent. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The Christ who came would save his people from their sins. He is the resurrection and the life. And if we believe, if we believe in him, it's not our faith that saves us. It's not a, well, if you believe hard enough, good things are going to happen. It's not that. If you trust in his provision, you have life that starts now and lasts forever. This is why the angel said to Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Christ did not come to condemn the world since the world already stood condemned, but that the world might be saved through him. Contrary to what we so often hear and say, the Christ did not come to change the world. You hear that so often at Christmas. This is, this is changing the world. Christ did not come to change the world. He did not come to usher in a new and better society. It's not the hope of Christmas. He came to change your eternal destiny. He came to save sinners, to give as many as will receive him the right to become children of God. He did this by becoming a sacrifice of atonement on the cross in our place, taking our sins and crediting his righteousness to us. Not that we are righteous, but that we are made righteous in him. We receive credit for what he did. This is what we commemorate in the remembrance celebration. This is the wondrous mystery that the very one against whom we sin would make himself the sacrifice to pay for our sin, that we might be his, that we might be holy, that we might be loved by trusting and receiving this gift. In just a moment, we're going to participate in that sacred ceremony. And it is my prayer for you that if you have not yet entered into that relationship, that you would do that right now. It, it doesn't take walking down an aisle or slipping your hand up or you know saying some magic word kind of prayer. It's as simple as, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I know that my sin separates from you, me from you. And Lord, I don't want to die. I want to live with you. I want to be yours. And I trust that Jesus 
is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If you haven't come to that relationship, give yourself to him now. If you hear him calling you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If he's tugging at your heart right now, there's a reason for that. And it's not because of songs or a speaker. It's because the Holy Spirit is saying, now is the day of salvation. Take hold of it. And if you're already in that relationship, then as we take this meal together, this symbolic meal, I exhort you to celebrate this Advent, not as a fun, nostalgic time, but with a broken, grateful heart because the God of heaven in his justice also chose to be the one who justifies you and paid the price for our sin. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Christ condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. Thank you, Lord, that the King of Kings allowed himself to be dependent on a young woman as an unborn baby, dependent on everything that she ate or drank and everything that she did to be born, to walk among us, and to one day deliver the one who delivered him. Lord, as we, as we now conclude our study time and we celebrate and remember the price that was paid for our lives, I pray that you would cause us to take it seriously. Make us mindful of what this means so that we might not take it lightly that you might be glorified and your body might be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.